All right. Well, let's bring him in now. It's Brian Burke, a former Canucks general manager, uh, general manager uh, on a number of NHL teams as well, and now currently working for Sportsnet, uh, who has written a book co-authored with Stephen Brunt, Burke's Law, Life in Hockey. Uh, thanks a lot for taking the time, Brian. How's it going? Good, guys. Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. Uh, as Alex mentioned, uh, we will probably get to the Sedines because that is a big part of uh, the legacy that you left here in Vancouver, but we were interested in starting out with some of the inside knowledge on, on how this book came to be. Uh, can you put us there? Uh, what, what's it like uh, for Brian Burke to work on a book, uh, write a book, and, and, and work with Stephen Brunt in ultimately publishing a book? Well, uh, Stephen Brunt did a great job writing the book. It is my voice. Um, I think sometimes when a sports book is written by somebody else, the, the true author loses his voice. And I think Stephen uh, told my story in, in his words, which were much more polished than mine, but it's my voice. And I was very happy with it. I think people really like it. I was very happy with the end product. Um, but basically, I was approached by Stephen about doing a, a book after we won the Cup in 07. And I said, no, I thought there was a lot of hockey ahead. And I was right. And uh, But I started keeping a diary after that. So last uh, the last year I was with Calgary, so it would have been 2018, I think, uh, in February, my boss, the late, great Ken King, uh, came to see me. And we had made a deal when I went to Calgary that at the end of each season, we'd review it. And if I was unhappy, I could leave. And if they were unhappy, they could make me move on. And he said, I think it's time to, to move on. I think Brad Chalabi's ready to do this on his own. And they were right. And uh, at the end of the year, we'll part ways. And I said, okay, that's the deal we made. That's fair. But all of a sudden, I was less involved in the decision-making. And so I had a little more time on my hands. So I started doing an outline. If I were going to write a book, here are the chapters, here are the key points. So I did about 100 pages, single-spaced. I hired a woman to type it for me and did about a 100-page outline with some of the stories in it. And then Stephen used that as a kind of a template for the book. He didn't. He looked at it and he said, this is garbage, but we'll use it as a, as a skeleton of the book. Brian, you've, uh, as, as Israel touched on, you worked in a number of different markets uh, on both sides of the border. Uh, prior to that, you were uh, an NHL agent. You've worked for the league. What was, in deciding what made the book versus what didn't make the book, I'm just wondering if, you, if there was any philosophy involved, uh, how you determined the things to keep in and, and the things that ultimately uh, landed on the editing room floor. Well, there, not much ended up on the floor because I had a philosophy going in. Anything that happened there wasn't general common knowledge on the team at that time was, was exempt. Like a one-on-one meeting with a player or a player discussing his situation or his ice time or his marital situation, that stuff's all, that's absolutely forbidden in my mind. So the test would be if, if I'm going to tell a story about a problem with an owner or a coach, uh, that had to have all been general knowledge with, with my team and with my management team. So there's no dirt, uh, dirty secrets or no, you know, I, I don't like even the score books. I don't like books where someone tries to even the score with people. I think it's very balanced, but that was the test is not, not to be mean, not to settle scores. And if you're going to tell a story, tell a story that other people in the organization were aware of it would back up. Now, before we get into some of this stuff that maybe pertains most to our audience in Vancouver, Brian, um, as Izzy mentioned, we've had a little bit of time to, to spend together, and, and I was hoping you could share with the audience um, the story. You were, you were a shy kid growing up, and I'm wondering if you can talk about how your dad's job moved you around and sort of 
eventually led to you being a little bit more of an outspoken individual. Um, but I also wanted you to touch on how you ended up at Harvard Law and the role that Lou, Lou Lamorello played in that for you. Well, the, I was a shy kid, and people will laugh at that, but I was a shy kid. I had braces. I, I, I wore glasses. I was tiny. Like my first weigh-in at Providence College, I was 6'2". I haven't grown a, a centimeter since I was 18. I was 6'2", and I weighed 176 pounds. And when I graduated, I was still 6'2", and I weighed 206 pounds. So that was all just the weight room and the work I did outside in the summer and all that. But we moved around a lot when I was a kid. So I was born in Providence, Rhode Island, ironically, about 1,000 meters from where I went to college. And then we moved to Philadelphia, then Chicago, then Boston, then Minnesota. My dad kept getting promoted at the company he worked for. And it forces you, when you go to a new school and have to make friends, you can't be a shy kid. It forced me to open up a little bit. And then uh, the law school story, I was a pretty... Uh, very studious person, uh, great student, great marks, and I was a history major. My plan was to get my my master's in history and teach and coach at the college level. And my senior year, Lou called me in and said, uh, you're writing this exam. My, your professor's telling me if you do well on it, you do get into Harvard or Yale. I looked down at the LSAT, Law School Admissions Test, and I shoved it back across the desk. I said, I have no interest in going to law school. And Lou shoved it back. He said, you don't understand. That was not a request. You're writing the exam. And I argued with him. He said, just write the exam. I said, I don't want to go to law school, coach. I got my future mapped out. He said, just write the exam. So I did, and I blew it away, and I got into Harvard, and I got into Georgetown. So my getting a lot of degrees directly responsible to Lou. Brian Burke with us on air, Sportsnet 650, talking about his new book, Burke's Law, A Life in Hockey. Uh, as Alex mentioned, Brian, uh, obviously we're doing the show here in Vancouver and that's our audience. You spent a lot of time here. You have a very strong insight on, uh, what it's like to be in, in the, the eye of the storm when it, when it comes to the Canucks. One thing that I, I was interested in, and, uh, I mean, you just talked about Lou Lamarillo, who's someone who's had a, a storied career in the game. And then, uh, the big reason that you ended up in Vancouver in the first place, Pat Quinn, another mentor of yours, a man that I was fortunate enough to spend a little bit of time with uh, through his time with the Vancouver Giants. Uh, what I found most interesting, or when I look back at the the history of the Vancouver Canucks, um, was when when Pat came here and when you came here in the in the late '80s. Uh, this was a team that for the better part of 20 years didn't have much of an identity. They did make the cup final in 82 and they had some strong players and stance meals, some character guys and Thomas Gradini, a great player, but uh, had not really established itself as, as an, as an organization with culture. And that seemed to change quite quickly uh, when, when Paquin and, and yourself came on the scene here, what was the thinking with uh, the two of you and, and, and the rest of the group taking over the Canucks and, and trying to build some sort of culture or organizational identity uh, with the team and, and some of the players that you were able to bring aboard fairly quickly at that point. Well, you mentioned me and Pat, but Pat was Batman. He was in charge. I was Robin. And Pat had a vision for a certain type of player. And we talk about character, and it's an overused word in sports, but we meant it. We talked about it like this is a kind of guy we want to bring here, a guy that's coachable, guy that'll be active in the community, a guy that rally for his teammates. So we drafted, you know, for the very first draft we took Rob Murphy with. We didn't have a first-round pick. We took Rob Murphy. Great kid. Has worked in pro hockey for the last 15 years. Wonderful young man. 
Uh, maybe didn't make it as well as the players we thought, but we got the right kind of guy. Stefan Bayou. We, we tried to get character people, and Pat made it a trademark when we drafted someone or traded for him. We wanted to find out as much as we could about their family and their values and their character. And so we did develop a culture. I think it started a little before we got there because I think Stan Smeal was really a positive influence even before we got here. Pat, Stan Smeal was a marvelous, marvelous captain. Brian, I wanted to ask you, um, I tried to do a little bit of digging about the book, and I came across uh, a reference to a Gretzky trade from Edmonton to Vancouver that as assistant GM you nixed. I'm just wondering if you could expand upon it and uh, and tell us what you have in the book about it. Well, I didn't. That was the headline. Someone that, that headline came out. So Gretzky, the rumor was he was moving, and it got real likes that he was coming to Vancouver. And Pat said to me, he said, we got to stop this. we got to leak it out that he's not coming to Vancouver so fans aren't disappointed. So I gave the story to Gord Miller, who was a young reporter at that time from Red Deer, and he broke the story. But Pat wanted to make sure that our season ticket holders weren't disappointed. So you see, I nixed the deal. It was more Pat turning to me and saying, run the numbers on this and can it make sense? <laughs> you know, you're not going to say no to Wayne Gretzky. You know, what a marvelous player, what a marvelous person. But the price tag didn't make sense for us. Like it was like, okay, I, I can, I would like a Tesla, but I can't afford a Tesla. So I drive a Ford and I love my Ford, but that's what it was is we'd love Gretzky, but the price tag would have been Greg Adams and Kirk McLean, I think, and a couple of picks and a bunch of cash. And then we just, I ran the numbers. So you go back in the, in the Pacific Coliseum at the end of our first year there, I think lower bowl tickets were $28. And I think the price tag on Gretz for, for us was $25 million. And we had, I, I want to say we had eight suites or ten suites that stuck up on the end there in the one end. Well, there's no way we could recover that revenue, let alone make the hockey assets make sense. So I told Pat, I, I, I cannot recommend this trade. And Arthur Griffiths was great about it. He, he was all excited about Gretzky, but once we ran the numbers, he was supportive too. He said, no, we can't do this. So then we wanted to make sure we leaked it right away so our season ticket holders weren't disappointed. Brian, one thing that, uh, and, and Alex mentioned it off the top, uh, that will you'll forever be linked to, to the Sedin twins. Uh, and a lot of that, and it, there's a video out there that, that I love of you kind of bossing the draft floor at that, at that draft in 99, uh, making all those trades work to, to get those draft picks. What I'm curious about is over the course of the 20 years that have followed as you stayed in the league and uh, took on a variety of roles with different teams, whether it was in Vancouver, Anaheim, Toronto, Calgary, how much, and then we, and we saw you working the draft as an analyst a couple of weeks ago, is that still a part of the game? Uh, or uh, is, is there still that ability to hit a draft floor and, and really make a mark as, as a general manager? Or is there such a value on draft picks these days and the way that players and draft picks are, are assets and, and they're they seen by organizations and by general managers as being hugely valuable that what you managed to pull off in getting the Sedin Twins players that you know, have their, their numbers up in the rafters in this city now and, and provided enough memories for, for a lifetime for Canucks fans, uh, is that even something that is possible in the game today? Well, a couple things. First off, um, thank you for the kind words, but keep in mind that was the worst first round in the history of the NHL. 
The reason we were able to do that is the first round that year, go look at it. And and don't go right after you eat. Go look at that first round. Like, there's terrible players in there. And the only reason we were able to make that deal is because the draft was terrible that year. The first round was awful. Second thing, and I, I never talk about the Twins without giving credit where credit is due. The guys that deserve credit for that deal are Thomas Gradine, who believed in the Twins long before I did, and Mark Crawford, who turned them into players. But to answer your question, is it possible? Yeah. Um, the one bad side effect of that deal is it kind of killed deals on the floor. It was so lopsided in our favor that it kind of wiped out uh, trade floor deals. You haven't seen any big ones. You see guys move back a couple spots this year, but no blockbusters because guy. I think guys are genuinely afraid of the risk now, and they weren't back then. I think the uh, the quality of that first round, Brian, almost uh, makes the job that you did even even bigger in sort of Canucks eyes in, in hindsight. Um, we were chatting earlier today. Um, I think for the fan base, we have so many memories of you, and most of them are from press conferences or interviews, that type of thing. Um, but they're quite selective. I'm wondering, through your two tours of duty in Vancouver... I'm wondering what are the sort of strongest memories or the things that you think of. Um, and they don't necessarily have to be on the ice, but when you think of your time in Vancouver um, as uh, a father, uh, as a husband, as a general manager, as a citizen, uh, what comes to mind about, uh, about Vancouver for you? Well, that's a big question. Okay. So let me step back. Point number one, I loved living in Vancouver. I was so sad when my contract wasn't renewed after 04, I believe that team was on the cusp of greatness. I loved the city. I loved the fans. I loved living there. And I was sick about having to move. And uh, I'm grateful for my time there. I'm grateful for the way the fans treated me at that time. Our team got better every year when I worked for Pat. Our team got better every year when, when I ran the show. And people just jumped on board. They loved the Canucks. They absolutely loved them. So it was a, I have nothing but great memories about Vancouver. Um, for me personally, uh, my two younger children were both born there uh, from my first marriage. And Marin, my uh, my 16-year-old, was born there. Uh, it's a special place for me. I became a Canadian citizen in Vancouver. I loved it. I loved everything about it. So um, in the book, I hope I conveyed that, that how much it meant to, to live and work in Vancouver, how fortunate I feel. The other thing I wanted to ask you, Brian, and you're probably one of the few people that's sort of uniquely qualified for this, is the markets that you've worked in, um, and specifically north of the border. And I want to ask you sort of your opinion. We were chatting about it last week about, is it a coincidence that no Canadian team has won the Stanley Cup since 1993? And, you know, you've worked in the eye of the sort of national hockey storm, if you will, in Toronto. Uh, Vancouver's an intense market uh, and sort of unique to itself. Um, you've spent time in Calgary, but you've also worked in Hartford, uh, the league office, and, and in Anaheim, which I sort of consider sort of a new sort of Sunbelt franchise. And I remember the 2007 year specifically, like when you guys won the cup and you faced Vancouver in the second round. I remember being sort of blown away at how um, relaxed your players seemed, you know, coming in for practice on off days in shorts and flip flops um, with t shirts. And I just wonder if you can speak to the effect in Canada and in markets, and does it have a real impact on players, uh, coaches, GMs, sort of the pressure, if you will, day in, day out? Um, is it a- no team north of the border has won the Cup since 93? 
you guys, these questions are way too long um, <laughs> and too complex. Number one, the reason a team hasn't won in Canada is because of the tax rates. It's that simple. Now, someone's going to figure it out, and someone's going to win a cup, but it's because of the tax differential. So when I ask my players for a no-trade list, a modified no-trade list, you get to pick eight teams you won't go to. The seven Canadian teams are on every single one of them, even on the Canadian kids list. And it breaks my heart. I say to these guys, well, why would you do that? Like, I told my players in Vancouver and Calgary, the years you play in Canada will be the most precious years of your careers. You'll look back on them so fondly. People love hockey. They love their team. But that's the main reason. Um, the pressure is another thing. So, yeah, so you're talking about Vancouver's a great market. Most of the media are positive. Most of the fans are positive. But there's a lunatic fringe. There's no question about it, especially in social media. Like Jim Benning did a marvelous job last year. The team had a great year. And you look at the social media and they're talking about firing them. I'm like, are you kidding me? So Vancouver's weird. It's a weird market. It's a great market with this lunatic fringe. Um, Toronto, the negativity is overwhelming just because of the size of the media. So if you're not playing well in Toronto, like in Calgary, we'd play a game on a Saturday night and there'd be 20, 25 people in the, in the room from the media. In Toronto, that's 100 on a Saturday night. If it's the original six team. If we're playing Montreal, it's over 100. And that's why when you look on TV and you see how big the dressing rooms are, they're not for the players. It's that big for the media. And in Toronto, there would be the whole room would be full of media. I remember sitting next to Freddie Anderson after a game one time, and he was in the end stall. Sorry, I'm outside here, and there's some traffic going by. He was in the end stall. And the, the, the press of media came about two feet away from us. There were 100 people in there. And so that's what's hard in Toronto is when you're struggling, there's 80 people throwing rocks or 100 people throwing rocks. In Calgary, it might be five. So it's a different market that way. But when you're playing well and you live in Canada, boy, it's special. All right, this will be a quick one, Brian, uh, to get you out on. Uh, and, and thanks a lot for joining us. For anyone who reads the book, what do you hope they take away from it or, or they might learn from, from reading your book? Well, I hope they like it, first of all. I don't want to collect 20 dollars for a book and then have someone throw it down and say, A, I didn't like it, or B, I didn't learn anything. I think people will learn things from writing, writing the book. To me, I wanted to show people the challenges of being a GM, dealing with players, dealing with coaches, dealing with owners, dealing with the league, dealing with your players. So I think people will find the inside stuff really informative and interesting, and I hope they do. Um, as far as what people think of me, I think they'll see there's a side of me they didn't know. But if they don't take that away, I don't care. I've never, I'm not running for office. I, I didn't write the book to become popular. But I think people will see there's a side of me traveling to see my kids two weekends every month for 11 years. A side of me, uh, talk about Brendan's passing, my son that passed away. I think they'll see there's a side there they didn't know. And if they like me a little better, great. If they don't, never care, never will. Well, I, I think people in Vancouver... Uh, will care and, and will read. Uh, it's, uh, I look forward to, to picking it up and, and reading it myself. I know Alex does as well. And uh, we thank you a lot for taking the time today, Brian, and discussing your, your life in hockey. Uh, you can uh, find the book where books are sold. You can find it in ebook, I assume, as well. Uh, thanks a lot, Brian. Thanks, guys.